UX Podcast is funded by James and myself, together with any contributions we can get from you, our listeners. You can contribute any amount you like, whenever you like, by visiting uxpodcast.com slash support. UX Podcast, episode 228. Hello, I'm Pat Axbo. And I'm James Royal Lawson. And this is UX Podcast. We're in Stockholm, Sweden, and you're listening in all 50 states of the USA from South Carolina to North Dakota. And today is time for a link show. We have yes. two articles for you that Per and I have stumbled upon, staggered over, and read uh, recently. And we th- During our digital travels. I normally do say that. During <laughs> we, our digital we travels. We always have to say that. Yeah. <laughs> um, I didn't, yeah, digital travels during the um, festive period. So right. the, um, the two articles are The Aesthetic Accessibility Paradox by Anthony Zeng on UX Movement. And the second article is uh, Three Principles for Designing Machine Learning Powered Products by Matt Budelman and Mark Kisselstein or Kisselstein. They work at um, Spotify Design. Uh, but let's start off with the uh, the static accessibility paradox because I think we we have a lot of feelings about this, and uh, I think one challenge here is not to get uh, too involved and emotional in in some of the ways that uh, he the author expresses how he looks upon accessibility because there you can we can read the article and you can look at the comments the comment section is quite revealing as well but let's start off with what this is about so there's uh, essentially according to the author a conflict between making something visually appealing and making it accessible for just everyone uh, and he he goes on to describe this using a vision as the example so uh, in the first paragraph, he, he claims that the majority of users uh, usually have normal vision, is his, is his sentence there, uh, while the minority have some form of visual impairment. Uh, and so the, the struggle here is that if you actually don't have a visual impairment, he says, then you want it visually appealing. But if you want it accessible, it won't be visually appealing for the majority of users, which will make it a worse experience for those yeah, people. A, a lesser design. That is the essential argument. Exactly. Mm-hmm. But but first off though, um we've got mm-hmm. to we've got to query the 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 majority and normal vision part of this. Yeah, let's start off by questioning that assertion in the first paragraph. The majority of users usually have normal vision. Now, I think that's I, know you um, I think that's quite true. Yeah. But <laughs> I'll say that with a star next to it because when we're talking about the the minority that do have a visual impairment, um, the World Health Organization, they've recently claimed or said that over 2.2 billion people worldwide have um, a visual impairment, treated or Mm. untreated. And in that case, it actually is the minority then. It's 2.2 billion, but it's a minority. It's uh, it's not yeah. a minority what? to sniff at because 2.2 billion people is a lot. Yeah. 
What I did, though, was actually I found a study from 2005 that tells us more. It's from Jobs on Research. tells us more about uh, the state uh, of vision impairment in the USA. And according to this study, over 61% of the population, or 177 million people in the U.S., need some sort of vision correction. And that, to me, sounds like there's actually a majority who do not have normal vision. We could also start talking about, I'm not, we can't get into specifically everything, but why would you call it normal vision? Uh, why is it normal uh, if it's not necessarily the majority as it is found by this? Study? Yeah, we, 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 you know, uh, there's, problems, there's problems with that phrase normal yeah. because it's normal from yeah. a certain perspective. Which implies that something else would be abnormal. Uh, but there's another interesting figure from this study. 12.2 million adults require some sort of vision correction but don't use any. So you, you might require glasses, but you don't use it. 12.2 million adults in the U.S. alone. So but if we're moving on from... We're talking about a lot of people. We are yeah. talking about a lot of people. But if we're moving on from mm-hmm. the, the, the stats of visual impairment, the, uh, one of the quotes from the article is, in general, the more accessible an interface is, the less aesthetic appeal it will have. Now, uh, that, I, I've, I just don't even know where to begin with that sentence, because, I mean... How do you how do you how do you claim that? I mean, how can you claim that if 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 an uh, interface is accessible, say made to be fully inclusive, that it's it's ugly, right? I mean, the, the crux of this, I guess, is you've got um, um, one thing aesthetics, which is, in my opinion, subjective. Mm. Beauty is in the eye, in the eye of the beholder. It's 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 entirely subjective. It's who it's what you think. And then we've got accessibility, which to a large extent is something objective. Right. Uh, you can you can measure if somebody has access to the solution or not. Yeah, and and on many many access mm. aspects of accessibility, mm. you can literally say yes or no. It 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 is fill. It can do that. You can do that. You can access that. You can't do that. You you, you can't do that. Um, and even with colours. And now this is also, uh, can be a bit of a contentious topic as well, but um, you can measure contrast, you can mm. measure readability, you can. There are ways of actually measuring whether something is likely to be accessible from a from a, a color um, perspective. Mm. When it comes so from th- what we're saying, really, is that you, two two uh, versions that are very aesthetically pleasing. For some people, because we know it's uh, subjective, both one of those could be inaccessible, one of it could be accessible, but you can't tell by just looking at it whether it is. Yeah, you actually have to do the due diligence of finding it out. Yeah, and and, and I think to, I mean, how do you measure that um, aesthetic side of things? I mean, to to decide whether your design is um, highly aesthetic would require Mm. a, a large amount of research to basically find. You know, to interview people and to specifically question the 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 or lay the question to them about um, beauty, define beauty. Philosophers have been trying to define beauty for thousands of years, and no one has completely mm. managed to do it. So how the how how the devil are you going to manage to go out there and 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 interview someone to 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 get an actual result on a checkbox of whether your site mm. or design is actually beautiful or not? Uh, you, you just we can't right. get there. Uh, as a bit of fun. I actually asked my 11-year-old, um, I showed him this. In the beginning of the article, there's um, a f- couple of pictures of a form on a website, mm-hmm. simple um, sign-up form. And they're compared side by side. 
and one of them is well it's actually marked as highly accessible and it, and it does it does look more contrast heavy um and then the other one is marked as um, highly aesthetic and it looks a bit you know, well, it's less contrast absolutely compared to the one on the left so i asked my 11 year old which one do you like best and showed him them he won't understand mm-hmm. the, the the he wouldn't really bother reading the marking underneath and he goes that one and points to the highly accessible one so i said why and he goes because you can see it better the other one is just gray right now what's what i think was fascinating <laughs> about that is i mean he he did a, a, a an aesthetic um, evaluation of these two pictures mm. spontaneously without prompt he just kind of like mm. threw them at him and, and said and he chose the highly accessible one exactly. now Anthony in the article goes on he shows a third one just lo- just below the fold on that one which is um, and reveals that the the, um, the two first pictures um, one of them was is, a, is double A compliant according to VCAG w, uh, WACG um, and mm. the other one was non-compliant um, right. So, so the triple A versus non-compliant, and then he goes on to show a double A compliant example, and says this one is is the is the balance. And I think I think that's what uh, what upsets me most about this article is that it it's misleading in a lot of ways. Uh, it mis- misleads in the sense that aesthetics is subjective. What is ex- uh, more accessible could be more uh, aesthetically pleasing for a lot lot of people. There's no evidence presented that it would that would not be the case. Uh, he asserts that uh, when it's aesthetically pleasing, it's harsh for people who have accessibility needs. Uh, and he he says, uh, contrary to that, that if it uh, if it's highly accessible, that it's very harsh for people who have normal vision I'm, I'm yes doing finger quotes uh, uh, the quote here is and, and um, there's no evidence and no evidence for that assertion no. either and, and the quote here is that um, however your design will alienate normal mm. visioned users who make mm. it the majority of your user base oh. <laughs> I mean it just goes it, all this goes completely against the whole idea of, of inclusive design and, 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 pr- and yeah. promotes the idea that you should you should only ever focus on the majority really because even though under the surface he's saying, oh, there is a bit of a compromise. Mm. It's a compromise that's just, at best, what he's promoting is a compromise that's just a little bit of um, recognition to the minority. But we're not going to really worry about them. Exactly. And, and here is, here's the thing then. You can't, you can't even compare those two uh, needs. Because if you have a preference for a certain aesthetic... That's very different from having a legitimate access need. Mm-hmm. If it's not aesthetically pleasing, but you can still use it, and more people can use it, that's more legitimate than designing for aesthetically pleasing and less people can use it. It, it just doesn't make any sense. Because and I also have, uh, I reacted to, to early on also this phrase, the goal of accessibility is to meet the needs of the minority because they're often forgotten. How is that the goal of accessibility? The goal of accessibility is to understand when you see every one of us as human beings with a right to information, to understand how you accommodate uh, those uh, people or the most number of people. It's not because they're often forgotten. It's because we see them as human beings. Mm. Yeah. Uh, it's it's just it's that's and that, I think that's what makes it emotional for me because there are so many things in this that actually almost are offensive to a lot of people 
but but if you assert that you are called an extremist, you are called an accessibility extremist or accessibility snowflake, uh, yes. as the original tweet said. Yeah, and, and and of course it is it is intended to provoke. That's how I feel about this article. And even so, and 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 the problem with these types of articles, of course, then there's always something in it that is correct. Yes, strive for double A, triple A is not always what you strive for, but also you can have the high contrast can be behind another button. I don't always approve of that, but some some um, some statements in the web content accessibility guidance could be interpreted that way. That, that that's a good way to to make a high contra- high contrast version behind a, another button. But so there are some things that are right, but it's presented in a way that the article itself actually misleads and alienates people. And I'd go further to say, I mean, I completely agree with you that this this article mm. clearly is trying to prov- um, um, provoke people, um, but mm. I. I don't think it's just provoking. I think it's dangerous because of exactly yeah. what you're saying, that it, it's painting mm-hmm. out things, it's, it's laying things out uh, to many people as a, as, as a reasoned argument. And, and on the surface, mm-hmm. some of these things come out you know, believable and correct, mm-hmm. you could argue. But it, it, yeah. it does such a disservice to so many aspects of how we, we, we should be working. And I think... Um, it's just interesting to suggest that there is a, an aesthetic accessibility paradox. I mean, you, you, th- they aren't two things that are in constant um, battle with each other. They are, they are not. No. They, 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 they shouldn't be. They don't have to be. And, and if you put them up against each other, then you're doing something wrong. And this article is wrong. <laughs> I mean, right. I mean, it does. I think yeah. some of the comments go on about there being a trade-off that we're always in situations where we have to make design trade-offs. And that is actually true. Well, I mean, mm. what we do is hard. The business environments or the organizations we work in are, are often very challenging. And mm. lots of people have very strong opinions. And, you know, we, we, you, don't, you, don't get your, you don't get your point across at every, uh, uh, at every corner. You don't even maybe have all the knowledge that you need mm. at all the points you know, we get stuff wrong. We need to do stuff again, and so on. So you will make trade-offs, but it'd be really good if you do make a trade-off, then you do it in situations where you're happy with it and you've made a conscious, informed decision. So you understand you may the done, harm you have, exactly. that you could be causing. Exactly. Uh, understanding that is, is key. Documenting it is key. Uh, being able to motivate that decision to others is key. All of that. Uh, I actually, I, I had, I had a quote I wanted to read from the comments from a color who, uh, a colorblind uh, person. Uh, this article makes me feel like I am the problem for being colorblind, and I, I really understand that, that how where he's coming from when he says that. And I have another quote uh, from another accessibility article that I'll put in the show notes. Accessibility drives aesthetics because the ability to use something is beautiful. Oh. And I just love that quote because that's what it's all about. Oh, that's lovely. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's actually probably a good point to wrap up on the first article. It probably is. <laughs> <laughs> so moving on, three principles for designing ML-powered products. ML? And if you don't know what ML, exactly, yeah. machine learning-powered products. Uh, and kudos to the authors here for not just throwing out the phrase AI. I love that. Yeah. But also 
not so good putting that abbreviation there. No, they 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 explain it, it in the first sentence. So well, yeah, they do it in the first sentence. You're right. Yeah, I'm not <laughs> complaining about it. <laughs> but it's Matt um, Budelman and um, oh, how did you pronounce this? Uh, Mark's surname. I'm saying Kisselstein or Kisselstein. Kisselstein. Hmm? We could do a, a we should do a separate podcast some point with le- teach James how to pronounce names. Exactly. But they both um, they both work <laughs> for Spotify Design. Um, and um, the article um, goes through the design process um, behind some of the um, machine learning um, driven features of Spotify, such as the Discover Weekly um, playlist mm. and the start page um, or the, 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 the home section um, of, um, of the Spotify app. And their first point. Oh, do you want to? Should we, list, to the, should, should we list all three straight off, so so people are kind of like do it. Yeah, do okay. It. So the yeah. three. Um, so these these three um, principles for designing machine learning powered products, um, according to Spotify Design, are identify friction and automate it away. Ask the right questions. And mm-hmm. go manual before you go magical. Which, on their own, maybe uh, won't uh, say so much. You actually have to read on to understand what each point is about. And uh, you, you told me you would react. I would react to the first <laughs> point, and of course I did, because it uses the word friction, yeah. which is one of my pet peeves. Uh, identify friction and automate it away, because every under- designer understands that we always have to reduce friction as much as, much as possible. Uh, but of course, uh, listeners to this show will know that I argue a lot for the addition of friction, where it's relevant to actually help people make better decisions. Well, also not just uh, the uh, so not just I the addition of friction, but I mean, I think we argue we've argued over the years. What just that whole thing of checking about the need for friction? I mean, you sometimes exactly. I mean, remo- yeah. rather checking for the need of removing it. Well, you're saying about adding it, mm. which is also a valid point, mm. but you also mm. kind of really have to think what happens when I remove friction. Yeah, but exactly. But the, the friction has a place. It has its own. Uh, uh, there's a reason we friction helps us drive on roads because otherwise we would slip off. Yep. So that 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 makes sense in all all actually <laughs> all professions and uh, industries. Yeah. So that's why I actually object to their example of reducing friction because their example of reducing friction is about instead of waiting two minutes to download a specific song, Spotify users could immediately play any song anytime, anywhere. And that is sort of the success story of, of Spotify, that they actually were able to accomplish that much earlier than anyone else could do it uh, online. And of course, that is what Spotify is all about. Kind of. Listen to music. Kind of. But I, 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 <laughs> when I read this, I get kind of, my brain starts wandering off and I'm thinking, God, if that's, if that's Spotify's goal to kind of, um, to, to kind of Spotify will play music Anytime, anywhere, removing all friction, then it would just start blat. Mm. It would just start blaring out music whenever I came near the Spotify app. I wouldn't even need to touch anything. Mm. It would just be constantly screaming music at me. That wouldn't be a good experience. Yeah. And I think that is more the point they're trying to make. I think they've just they've just glossed over that aspect of it. That they 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 do really want to have a good experience. So they they are exactly. promoting that you you find friction in the form of things that are hindering um in a negative way what you want to achieve with the app mm-hmm. and exactly because they have friction it. because they actually have they have uh, 
uh, buttons to control the music, and they actually do have pauses between each played track. So they, there is friction that they have. They just don't maybe not acknowledge it as friction always. But I, I'm I'm not being entirely fair mm-hmm. either because they actually do define they define friction. Uh, as anywhere in the user experience where humans struggles in pursuit of their goals, so you actually have to figure out the goals first before you decide to reduce friction. Yeah, um, and ultimately you'd want to check to make sure those goals are actually um, uh, healthy goals or um, mm. fair goals, because you don't want to necessarily support all users in all their goals. But, but I also wonder sometimes, when I was thinking about this when I was reading about Discovery Weekly, it's not something I use, but I understand that people really appreciate it. But doesn't that if you always use Discover Weekly, you've always given the uh, the power to someone else to decide for you what songs you're you're going to discover. You never actually sit down and 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 put that effort into discovering music yourself. You just re- sort of rely on that well machine learning process to do it for a you. A little bit, although of course it needs mm. it, it, the 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 songs you play from Discover Weekly are not used to d- generate Discover Weekly. So you've got to you've got to listen to stuff outside of that playlist to to allow that playlist to be generated effectively. Um and that's a, that's a, an excellent point because that actually that actually brings us into what they're saying at the end here. It's it's a when what I really like about it uh, is that it's a combination of augmentation and automation. You have to decide what to automate and you have to decide what you augment and also of course what still has to stay manual. Uh, so that balance always has to be there, and I like that they acknowledge that. Which, yeah, exactly. This is one of the the main mm-hmm. points about mm-hmm. this that mm-hmm. it's um, identify friction automated away um, when it's suitable to automate it, and don't automate it away completely. They, so they 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 really are pushing the the thing about um, enhancement and augment augmentation and um, um, and reducing friction. Um, so they they are actually, I think tying into what you said about they're not trying to re- remove friction c- completely they are just exactly. they are just really trying yeah. to make a better user experience mm. which is so yeah. so as far as a as far as the first principle of designing a machine learning powered um product this is actually a pretty mm. good um principle so we're agreeing with the principle absolutely i think similar thing for number for the second principle ask the right questions uh, yeah. They they start off this section by by quoting um, Picasso. Um, computers are useless; they can only give you answers, mm. which is a you know, it's wonderfully philosoph- philosophical um, um, statement. You can't give the right answer unless you've understood the question, and that's yeah. essential with machine yeah, learning I like too. That, yeah. You um, mm. you, you when you de- when you're designing something based on machine learning, how can you get the computer to give the right answer unless you've really understood what's going on? Um, so <clears throat> this this principle in, in um, shows how Spotify try to embrace that when um, designing. Uh, use this to help shape algorithms in human-centered ways um, and, and try mm. to focus on the human side of this first before they dive into the machine side of things. They, they write here, um, what does it mean to, to like an artist um, or an album or a playlist or, or podcast on Spotify? Um, how does the how does the user's context shape their decision of what to listen to? Uh, what does someone need to know before making the choice of what to listen to? Mm. So, so by asking these questions or, or even hundreds of questions, um, it forces them to put the the actual user scenarios and user needs at the at the centre of the algorithm. With one caveat, uh, when I was reading this, because I was always I wasn't playing devil's advocate when I'm reading these articles, 
well, first when I was looking at it, why do they keeping asking these questions to themselves? Why don't they go and ask them to users? But <laughs> when you read on, they, they they start listing the questions and to find the answers to these questions, they actually are they have to go out and talk to people. And they use they assess the user feedback and identify behavioral patterns in the data. So they're both looking at qualitative and quantitative data to understand this. And it was only after they started proving the hypothesis they had based on these questions that they started to apply machine learning. So I, I like how they're describing that we move very slowly, actually. <laughs> that is sort of what I'm getting this. We move slowly and um, consistently and with intent before we apply the complex areas of the design. Yeah, you're getting in now to the third um, principle that they, they list. Go manual before you go magical. Um, and right. this is, um, they say here, as, as Spotify designers, um, um, you get to a certain stage during product development and a typical delivery will be a wireframe or a prototype of the intended experience. But when designing machine learning experiences, um, it might look like a set, it might be a set of rules that you you deliver. They they get the question of like how do you prototype a personal experience? Is what is what they bring up in the mm. article. The challenge of that uh, when you've got to this point, which they say, well, you're maybe not going to go straight on to using the data at first. Um, right. So um, they use hypotheses and um, start to manually build up rules that might succeed in fulfilling that hypothesis. Exactly. And once they've got a set of rules or heuristics, as they, they write in the article, um, they will actually maybe get the data people to build something that pulls out the um, the data to, to generate that. Um, mm. But um, to, I'll, I'll quote another bit from the article here. Um, if we can't achieve a good quality experience with a manual approach, applying machine learning to the problem probably won't be worth the investment. Exactly. So, so if they build up the, they build up their heuristics on their questions and hypotheses, and then try and answer them themselves, um, mm -hmm. and see whether there's kind of constraints or things that would work, and only one they've they're satisfied with that kind of self check, that they would then probably go forward to to putting the effort into to to setting the algorithm loose. Exactly. I really love how this. I, I'm realizing now that. This article is the is really explaining uh, uh, when you, when people say just because you can build it doesn't mean you should build it and and when if it, if you wonder what that means you can read this article because this is what it means it means that you are really intentful about finding out if you should build it mm. I, I'm liking it more and more as we're discussing it actually because I found I thought I found some faults in it but I I really like what where they're coming from they're talking about speed in the end that they, that they're moving as fast as possible but I. I really like how slowly they're moving as well. Yes, because that's what I'm taking yes. away from it. And this is this is <laughs> this is for me. I mean, I, we we start by focusing on a bit of the friction side and the danger of that. But mm. yes, absolutely. Ultimately, um, mm. and they they themselves say um, the techniques that they're use, uh, describing in the article. These are all techniques derived mm. from long-established human-centered design principles, and 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 it's true. And it, you can tell that by reading the whole article. And and I love the fact that they've really shown. The, the benefits and the advantage of investing quality time, quality research to truly understand mm. the problem and create a, 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 a working solution. Um, this, exactly. this is the kind of approach that I think we, we lack in so many aspects, especially when we're, we're forced with 
with with the the um, various methods of working that we use with you know agile and and um, sprints and so mm. on, where we're we're and skateboards for um, what's it called um, uh, minimal viable products. All these things that push us to mm. do stuff quickly and get stuff out there. Whereas here we're seeing mm. the 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 benefit and the um, quality that you can get, um, and ultimately the better user experience you can deliver by investing genuinely in the design. Mm. I'm wondering now if this actually is an effect of uh, machine learning being quite complex and expensive, uh, so that you realize that if you invest too much in the wrong solution, it will actually be very expensive in the long term, uh, or also in the short term as well. Uh, whereas during design, f uh, during the 2000s and 2010s, uh, we've been, we've been, we have had so many designs that are so cheap to produce. So you actually, you can go two weeks and you, oh, you have an idea, and another two weeks you have it published out there, uh, and that's sort of what's created a, created a lot of the problems we have in design today, where you release solutions that you haven't really checked what harm they could probably possibly create. But in this case, you actually have something that you have to create that is quite expensive and difficult to maintain. Uh, so you have to be really, really sure that you're doing the right thing, which actually forces you to be this careful about what you're doing. Hmm. I think it's a good point about design being cheap. I mean, we, we sp many times you're doing multiple variations of designs and A-B testing them and so on. Because mm. it's so cheap, you can actually throw out two of them yeah. or three of them or whatever. Exactly. Um, yeah. No, so, I mean, they, they do work iteratively. They, they say in it that they do many rounds of some of the manual um, um, part of this um, design. Um, so it's it's not like they do one design straight away and they throw it out. They they really do take their time to, to iterate and to, to test to to see what's happening. Is it achieving what they want before mm. taking that final, uh, well, not final, that, that next big leap into production, mm. into release to a large user base? Yeah. So I think we can definitely learn a fair bit about healthy mm. design from, n not just for machine learning, but design in general, mm. from this um, article about yeah. m machine learning from Spotify. Mm -hmm. I'm browsing ahead in my notes here, and I'm 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 looking at uh, what episode we rec we're uh, supposed to recommend for the show, and it's 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 fantastic because you actually found an episode from way way back, episode sixty six, which was when we six also featured years an ago. article. Yeah, <laughs> also an article by Anthony Tseng. Was that also on UX Movement? I guess. Yes. Yeah. Okay. It's a wow. it's a classic episode. Is it the White Rabbits episode? Yes. And oh my god. And. <laughs> I mean, of course, it's the epic delete undo <laughs> argument, and yeah. it's the peanut butter and jam episode, where where Jared Spool <coughs> and um, <coughs> sorry Peter Merholtz yes um, argue about whether UX um, basically destroyed um, um, IA information architecture. Oh wow! And peanut butter and jam comes up as the as the the Jared analogy. It's an excellent um, thread. Uh, that's a, it's, a, it's a classic episode. <laughs> and the epic delete undo argument is really the first and ever only time that you and I really argued. <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah. That's what UX movement does to you. <laughs> mm. <laughs> Hope you enjoyed today's leak shop. And if you'd like to contribute to funding UX Podcast, then please visit uxpodcast.com slash support. Remember to keep moving. See you on the other side.
Why was King Arthur's army too tired to fight? I don't know. Why was King Arthur's army too tired to fight? It had too many sleepless nights. Oh. <laughs>